This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for Friday, April the 26th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. C-SPAN's newest book, published by Public Affairs, looks at America's presidents. And just ahead, our conversation with the company co-CEOs, Susan Swain and Rob Kennedy. They led a C-SPAN-wide effort in putting together our 10th book. As way of background, three times since 2000, C-SPAN has surveyed historians to rank America's presidents. Those surveys and interviews conducted by C-SPAN's co-founder Brian Lamb became the centerpiece for this project. The book is titled The Presidents, Noted Historians Rank America's Best and Worst Chief Executives. And joining us here in our C-SPAN studios are co-presidents, Rob Kennedy and Susan Swain. And Susan, I want to begin with your work on this project in your introduction. The question that you pose, what are the leadership skills that make a successful president? I don't know. That's why we did the book. But I'll tell you how the book came about. About a year and a half ago, we were looking at our 40th anniversary, which is this spring. And we had also done a book about first ladies in 2015. And it seemed if we were going to do another book project to mark our anniversary, the president's was the next one in line that we had to do for two reasons, that we have 30 years of Brian Lamb interviews in our video archive, and he has talked to some of the top historians in the country over those 30 years. And we also have this three times now national survey of American presidential historians of the leadership qualities of presidents. The idea that we took to our publisher, Public Affairs in New York, let's marry the two of those. Let's use the survey as a way to rank and organize the lives of the presidents so that it doesn't follow chronologically, but you get a best to worst snapshot of each president and perhaps discern what it is that put the top guys at the top and why the bottom ones are always at the bottom of the pile. And we'll talk about those presidents, but Rob Kennedy, you really looked at the numbers and calculated who's number one and who's number 43. That's right. Uh, we did three surveys over um, starting in 2000 and then 2009, 2017. Every time a president left office, we added him to the survey. We did those three surveys. We sent surveys to around 100 historians, took the responses back in, and uh, averaged the results on 10 categories of presidential leadership, calculated a total score, and that's what gives us the rankings. So Susan Swain, what are those 10 characteristics? When we decided we wanted to do the survey, we went to three fabulous historians whose names are on the cover of our book. Douglas Brinkley, who's now at Rice University, Edna Green Medford, who is the Dean uh, of Humanities at Howard University here in Washington, D.C., and Richard Norton Smith, who has written biographies of numerous presidents and has run five presidential museums and historic sites. And we asked them to help us decide what are the metrics, what makes a good president. Lots of great arguments, Rob, you'll remember about should this one be included or should not. But we ultimately, as a group, came down to these 10, and, and I will read them to you public persuasion, crisis leadership, economic management, moral authority, international relations, administrative skills, relations with Congress, vision, setting an agenda, pursued equal justice for all, and the last one is performance within the context of times. I want to talk about that one for just a moment. The idea that we, with 20 19 eyes can look back at the presidency of someone in the 1850s 
is uh, a, a bit specious when you think about it because our society has changed so much. The presidency has changed so much. The country is a different place. So that last category kind of gives you a bit of a pass with the historians. Did they do the best that they could in the times in which we, they lived? So that, even though each quality was, was judged at an equal number of points, that one there is to allow historians to say, yeah, well, with today's eyes, we really don't like what Andrew, uh, Andrew Jackson did with the Trail of Tears or with his views towards uh, black Americans. Um, but we also recognize that society as a whole was in a different place. So that's why that category is here. But as Rob explained, every one of them, just to make it simple, gave uh, equal number of points in the overall calculation of the president's final tally. And you know, they really do need some of all of them. So could a president have great public persuasion skills but lack moral authority? If they did, would they be a successful president? So each one of them has its role to play. And when you look at the people on the bottom of the list, they had uh, they were in difficult times. Most of them were in times leading up to the Civil War or right after. But they also didn't have the skill set that Abraham Lincoln did, who's right in the middle of all the worst presidents. And yet he brought some strength of character, some decisiveness, his willingness to go forward that set him aside from the bookend presidents on either side of him. And Rob Kennedy, decisiveness is a word that is often used in this book. It, it's probably not going to surprise our listeners that Abraham Lincoln comes out on top, but explain. Well, I think that comes to um, some of the specific categories, and particularly crisis leadership, where Lincoln has scored first consistently in all three of the surveys. Uh, the others who are high in crisis leadership are George Washington, uh, FDR, uh, those are really the top three. And Susan mentioned a lot of the presidents who were in the antebellum era leading up to the Civil War, they score very low in crisis leadership. And our historians have pointed out, too, that uh, presidents who are thrown into a crisis and see their way through it typically score high in other areas as well, whether it's administrative skills, economic management, um, vision setting an agenda. There's a lot of correlation between some of those categories. And we should point out that there is an accompanying website that has all of the interviews that are part of this book. Susan Swain, can you address that? Well, we spent a lot of time on this website, so I hope people listening will find it. And if you're interested in presidents, you don't even have to buy the book to get to the website. It has the complete interview for all of the historians who are featured in the book. It also has all of their rankings across all three surveys. But we also did another thing, and as you go through the chapters, there are references to things that happened in American history. And in virtually every one of them, there is a link that you can learn more about the panic of you know, 1817 or the, uh, a certain war that was perhaps a minor one in American history but featured a lot in a president's particular administration. So you can go as far and as deep as your interest really takes you. The thing about this book that it's not a scholarly work, and I really invite people who just... Uh, say, I, you know, I'm not a historian. I, I don't know how much time I have to learn about presidents. We wanted this to be approachable. So it's a very conversational book. It is the exact words of historian from an interview that you're reading as a chapter. And so it's enormously uh, centered around storytelling. And then if you want to learn more, you can use the cspan.org presidents. You can find that from our homepage. 
And you can get deeper and deeper as you want to on any particular presidency that interests you uh, as you go along. Well, here's a sampling of what you'll find. I want to let our audience listen to Harold Holzer, who is uh, one of the definitive authors and historians on Abraham Lincoln. His book, Lincoln, President-Elect. I think the documentary evidence that I've uncovered and the, um, the, the nature of, by looking at all of the problems that afflicted Lincoln concurrently, by taking the approach that I wasn't going to look at cabinet selection, inaugural address challenges, political patronage, all as separate issues, that I was going to just do his daily routine and examine the pressures and his response to the pressures, I, I think I've made a fairly strong case for the fact that he basically said no to the extension of slavery that might have prevented war from occurring in 1861. It might have postponed it, but in the end, might also have perpetuated um, slavery for another 50 years. And Rob Kennedy, you are an Illinois native, and is it safe to say that there have been more books written about Abraham Lincoln than any other chief executive? Seems like it, especially when you come from Springfield, Illinois. That's your hometown. You're surrounded by Lincoln everywhere you go in that town. So um, I would say probably yes. And he also scores consistently across many, uh, if not all, of the categories within the uh, 10 categories of presidential leadership. So he, from uh, crisis leadership, uh, economic management, moral authority, his lowest ranking was a number four rank, and that's in relations with Congress. So that shows you the types of mark that Abraham Lincoln gets. I want to speak to the inclusion of Harold Holzer. So again, the idea with this book is we organized it by the surveys, which Rob helped to calculate. Uh, but the individual chapters are reductions of hour-long interviews that done by our colleague Brian Lamb. We chose Harold Holzer because Harold himself has written 52 books about Abraham Lincoln. His entire adult scholarship has been on the, one would say, sometimes minutiae of the life of this, our 16th president. We chose this particular book. We had several of them in our video library, but because it was a very small slice of Lincoln, but we were using it to show leadership. It's only the period of time between his election in November and is swearing in in March and the kinds of things that he has a human being who had never really been to Washington except as a one-term congressman had to do to get himself ready to assume this mantle as the country is veering towards civil war. Small things like having a yard sale because we didn't help presidents with the money to travel to Washington. And so, he didn't have the money. Right. So he had to sell his belongings in the yard in Springfield, Illinois. He gave away the family dog because he couldn't bear to sell his dog. I mean, that's such an intimate portrait. And it's the kind of thing that you read in this book that makes these marble statues sitting in our hallways in great buildings become real human beings. But it's also how his life was threatened and how he was advised to take a special train on his trip into Washington so he wouldn't be attacked by a mob and trying to decide whether or not he was brave enough to go forward and risk losing his life or taking that other train and risk being lampooned, which he was, for being a coward. So do we lose him on the way to taking the presidency or does he make the harder political decision and save his life perhaps in that instance so that he can get to Washington and be sworn in? That's a leadership 
problem right in front of him as he's uh, uh, ready to assume the office. And that's the kind of story that you get inside this book. We're talking with Susan Swain and Rob Kennedy, co-presidents and chief executive officers of C-SPAN, leading the collective company-wide effort of the new book, The Tenth book by C-SPAN, The Presidents. Number two is George Washington. Number three, Franklin D. Roosevelt. No surprise in those names. Teddy Roosevelt is number four. But Rob Kennedy, Dwight David Eisenhower comes out number five. He's going up too. Why? <laughs> he, he is going up. Um, when we first did the survey in 2000, he was number nine. And with the second survey in 2009, he'd moved up to eighth. But now he's number five. And it's maybe an open question as to why, but I think in general we're reflecting on the Eisenhower years more positively and thinking about his presidency maybe in a different way in terms of how he led in a more uh, silent or hands-off fashion. But his marks have come up not just in the overall rankings, but also in several of the other categories as well. We chose for his chapter William Hitchcock, a University of Virginia professor, and he's a specialist in 20th century American history and the Cold War period. I just want to read you a little bit of what he says about Eisenhower, and maybe we can understand why his rankings have gone up. He said to us, and it's in the book, I call his the disciplined presidency. Eisenhower and the way he carried himself and the man that he was was a disciplined man, a great athlete when he was young, and an organized man in every respect, very methodical. That's how he ran the White House, too. He was very systematic in the way he governed. He met with the press every week. He met with congressional leaders every week. He chaired the National Security Council himself every week. He had his thumb on the government. He trusted the process. He believed the federal government could work well if it was well-led. He, I think he stands, says Hitchcock, as a real model to learn from. And of the top 10 presidents, number nine, Rob Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, our 40th president. And like President Eisenhower, President Reagan has come up in each one of the surveys we've done. He entered the surveys at number 11 back in 2000, and he's come up one spot each time to number 9. He gets very high marks in public persuasion as a, as a great communicator. He gets uh, his lowest marks, though, in administrative skills, where he actually ranks 33rd. But overall, historians' assessment of him across the categories has generally improved, and that's put him solidly in the top 10. And he's the only modern president to be in the top 10. It's an interesting thing. So we do these surveys as a first mark in history as they're leaving office, understanding that no one has had time to temper their view of a president's accomplishments in office. But we wanted to put the marker down by getting them as they're leaving office and watch how they change over time. So it is interesting to see that Ronald Reagan made it into the top 10 as we've had the time away, the 30 years, to look back on his, on his presidency and see how things turned out with the Cold War, uh, to see how valued we, we find his communication skills. We uh, chose Lou Cannon as his biographer represented in the book. Lou Cannon spent his entire journal life covering Ronald Reagan from his earliest days in California uh, as governor of that state through his White House years. But he also is a multiple book biographer of Ronald Reagan. So he really knows this man 
And he talks about the fact that Ronald Reagan's days will be no more. There is no America of the kind that Ronald Reagan envisioned or the life that he led or the country even that he led back then. Ours is a much more complex world in this day of digital uh, internet and non-state actors and the like. And his patriotic views of America that he so valued and brought to the imagery he created as a president are something of a, a snapshot in time. In a recent conversation that we covered at Mount Vernon with the three historians who were part of this project, the presidents, the book, the issue of a president being reelected, and it came up with the recent passing, Susan Swain, of George Herbert Walker Bush, many calling him the greatest one-term president in American history. How important is re-election in terms of where a president is ranked? Well, second terms are not always as successful as first terms. So it it is, uh, I think one of the things that, that the historians at Mount Vernon, uh, the three that are in the book that helped us, commented is that some of these presidents, we can only speculate. So if JFK had lived and been elected to a second term, problems may have escalated. We see him forever in the snapshot of the young martyred president. The same with Abraham Lincoln. If he'd had to live out and deal with the problems after the war that Andrew Johnson and successive presidents ran into, might have been a different story. So in some ways, uh, serving only one term doesn't give us fatigue that we sometimes develop with these presidents. And certainly for those who lost their lives during their presidency, we have a, a sort of a halo effect that stays with them throughout history. So second terms are no guarantee that they are going to fare well. It's, it's, and it really varies with the kinds of challenges that the presidents face. And Rob Kennedy, what struck me is what Doug Brinkley said, that presidents are elected on their promises, re-elected on their results. That's right. Doug was uh, very interesting talking about that and the role of the second term, as Susan said. And there are very few single-term or less than full-term presidents in the top 20. Uh, JFK is probably the highest, and that talks about promise unfulfilled, and as Doug talked about last night, uh, the promise of JFK, and he will always be the young president who was assassinated. And he ranks eighth, but then the next one-termer is James Polk at 14th, and John Adams at 19th, and George Herbert Walker Bush at 20. So there's only four, I think, then in the top 20. But there are mitigating factors. Truman, of course, would have loved to have been reelected. And uh, I mean, he, if he could have run with Eisenhower as a, a vice president, he even proposed that, as it's suggested in our book. That's a factor. Lyndon Johnson gave up the thought of, of his own real second term mm -hmm. after he came into the White House because of the Vietnam War. So it's certainly uh, there are, you know, there are the different stories within those top 10. The C-SPAN book titled The Presidents noted historians ranking America's best and worst chief executives and among the worst, Andrew Johnson and included in the book uh, the work of David Stewart, author of Impeached, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy and his story about Johnson swearing in as vice president and his drinking habits. He did start on a wrong foot. Uh, he wasn't feeling well in the morning uh, of the inauguration. He got to the Capitol. He had an attack of nerves, which was odd. He'd been in the Senate as a senator for years, uh, and he'd done an immense amount of public speaking. Uh, and uh, so he asked for some whiskey. And the account we have is that he downed three tumblers full of whiskey, which even for a heavy drinker, uh, 
would have an impact in a short period of time. And so he went out to take his oath of office and everybody in the chamber could tell he was drunk. He spoke uh, erratically. He said things that didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, it was a humiliating experience, uh, so humiliating, frankly, that he left town uh, for at least a week thereafter and just stayed in the state, actually in Silver Spring, uh, Maryland. Uh, and when he came back into town, he, he was very invisible until the, the time of the assassination, just because it had been such a mortifying experience. And then, of course, Rob Kennedy, Andrew Johnson would go on to be the first U.S. president to face impeachment. That's right. And he comes in number 42, which is second from the bottom. James Buchanan is 43rd, which is dead last, as we say, and Franklin Pierce, 41. So the two presidents before Lincoln and the one president after Lincoln, arguably two that uh, caused the Civil War or let the Civil War occur, or the circumstances that built up to the Civil War, and then the president afterwards who had such troubles with Congress and was ultimately impeached. So that particular era gives us our three worst and our one best. And the author included on James Buchanan's book, the worst president ever. He does come in last. And Susan Swain, what's interesting is that William Henry Harrison, who served just over a month, didn't make the bottom five. Well, you can look at it another way. William Henry Harrison only served a month, and there are one, two, three, four, five presidents worse than him, <laughs> which makes them overall net negatives as chief executives. Uh, Rob can explain, though, William Henry Harrison did as well as he did because of the way you constructed the survey. People didn't have to answer if they really had no concept of how a president served. That's right. The historians could choose not to complete the responses for a particular category or a particular president. We did have nearly 100 responses this last time around, and of that, about 30 responded on William Henry Harrison. And what's really interesting about William Henry Harrison in the rankings is he actually gets relatively high marks in one category, at least relative to the other categories, and that's public persuasion. And I think that... Because of the long speech? Because of the long speech. I think he ranks 28th <laughs> in public persuasion, and maybe that's what lifts him out of uh, being in the in the bottom five. No, I, I got to tell you, read the chapter on William Henry Harrison. It is fabulous. Uh, Ronald Schaefer is a Wall Street Journal writer who did his biography, and he talks about William Henry Harrison. People will remember from high school, Tippy Canoe and Tyler too. Uh, he ran the first modern presidential campaign, and that's where the communication skills came in. They recreated a little log cabin and took it in parades on the road, and people were out by the thousands in streets cheering him on with this slogan and had campaign songs around him. It brought out the crowds. It excited them about presidential politics in ways that hadn't been known before. That's where his communication skills were. He had been an enormous war hero, and people were sh shocked, even though he was up in years. He was a very robust character, and his sudden death, really pretty sudden death, shocked the nation. John Tyler, who was part of the bottom five, and yet he had some successes in his administration, including the annexation of, of Texas. And that, that shows in his um, category rankings, where his highest ranking is 28th in international relations, which I think comes from that relationships with foreign countries in North America, Mexico, and that sort of thing. So uh, John Tyler got high marks in international relations, 
But in a lot of other areas, including, for example, pursuit equal justice for all, he's in the bottom five. He was a states writer identified with the Old South so much that after he left office, he actually ran for the legislature of the Confederacy and won a seat, but he died before he was able to be sworn in. Another author included in this book, James Mann. He is the author of George W. Bush and talked about his election in 2000, but more significantly, his election as Texas governor. The best line on that came from his father, George H.W. Bush, who wasn't always full of great quips, but um, said <coughs> that for, for George W. Bush to get elected to president after he was governor of Texas was like a six-inch putt. It was harder for him to be elected uh, governor. He had, there was a very popular, uh, well-remembered now Democratic governor, Ann Richard. Um, she was the one who, um, who said of George H.W. Bush that he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Where does George W. Bush rank, Rob Kennedy? He ranked 33rd in 2017. That's up from 36th in 2009, which was the first time that he was ranked. And he benefits, we talked a little earlier about President Reagan's numbers going up over time. This has also happened with President Clinton. And in George W. Bush's uh, rankings, he has, he jumped 11 points in public persuasion. We remember Ann Richard, and Ann Richard's governor of Texas, and uh, really what a colorful politician she was. Miss, Mr. Mann, misremembered that quote, as, as George W. Bush would, would probably say himself. He, she actually said he was born with a silver foot in his mouth and then went on to offer him a great political compliment, and that is with Karl Rove, the two of them developed enormous message discipline. And she tells the anecdote that when she campaigned against him, if someone would ask him the question, what time of day it is, he would say, all children deserve a good education, meaning that he was always on message no matter what the question was. And he saw that throughout his time in the White House. That White House had enormous message of the day, and the administration stuck to it across the ranks. And yet he faced two crises early in his administration, of course, 9-11, and then in the fall of 2008, the bank collapse right, and Hurricane Katrina. So he's got some big issues and how he dealt with them as president uh, to uh, deal with in the eyes of history. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not he continues to move or if his place in history for our lifetimes is, is where we see it right now. And you mentioned the interviews that Brian Lamb conducted. This is his conversation with David Garrow on the most recent occupant of the White House before Donald Trump. Barack Obama. The book is titled Rising Star, The Making of Barack Obama. What mark would you give him on racial injustice? I'd give him a high mark. I mean, I, I, at, at the end of a, uh, uh, in his presidency, he convened a meeting one day of African-American leaders in, in the White House, and he said to them, you know, he said, I look forward to the day when you can ride on a railroad car, when you can eat in a restaurant, when you can do so, along with every other person, you know, regardless of the race, that day must come. That was David Garrow, the author of Rising Star, a book about Barack Obama, a conversation with Brian Lamb, part of the video library available at cspan.org backslash the presidents. Rob Kennedy, let's talk about the former president, the 44th president, Barack Hussein Obama. President Obama entered the survey in 12th position and like a lot of the recent presidents, there's a wide variation among the, the various categories. He's, his highest ranking was third, which was in pursuit equal justice for all. His lowest ranking 
was 39th, which was in relations with Congress. Now, it'll be interesting to see how that moves because let's look at President Clinton just as a point of reference. When he was first surveyed, his relations with Congress ranked 36th, which was just post-impeachment. But two surveys later, he's already up to 17th. That's President Clinton. So President Obama has some of that variation built into the ranks, but overall came in very strong, 12th in his first time. Historian David Garrow was chosen for the Obama chapter. It's really kind of an interesting story. Mm -hmm. David Garrow won the Pulitzer Prize in 1987 for his biography of Martin Luther King. He is a self-proclaimed progressive. And uh, his he actually got to spend eight hours with Barack Obama himself while he was in the White House and reviewed some of his notes with the president. And the president was really very welcoming to him. When the book came out, the Obama administration didn't like it. And actually, as I understand from, from Mr. Garrow, worked to diminish people's uh, acceptance of it in the marketplace. David Garrow tells us that he wrote the book meaning for it to be a definitive biography of Barack Obama's course to the White House, the developmental years of him as a politician. And uh, he knows that the reason why it was not so well received by the White House is because he ended up being critical of Barack Obama on a few fronts, particularly in how he dealt with African-American issues once he got to the White House, how he disappointed a number of progressives. And in another big area is on domestic surveillance, the continuation of the wars, things that out on the campaign trail as he was seeking the presidency in the first term, he really criticized the incumbent in the White House for. And then when he got into office, the progressives were pretty disappointed for how he approached them from a, a, a governance standpoint. Can both of you address the mechanics of putting this book together, both the research, you talked earlier about the historians who were part of this collaborative effort, and then, Susan, you were on the front lines editing all of this. <laughs> well, <laughs> I took it upon myself. Uh, really, uh, I have done, this is my 10th version of these, and I have really developed a bit of an art form. So I get transcripts of Brian Lamb's interviews. They're an hour long, so that's a lot of pages. And the first thing I do is listen to them against the video to make sure that the transcribers got it right. They don't always hear words. And then you start the process of stitching together. So Brian Lamb is very well known for, and it makes his interviews interesting, not following any linear pattern whatsoever in his <laughs> interviews. So you can jump from one subject to another to another. Well, you don't want to do that in a book. So I have to reorder them so that they follow. And what we do in the book is actually mark that with a double space so people know that I moved it out of the order that it happened in. And uh, then, really, it, you start to uh, weave it into a narrative but retain the historian's original thoughts. So we don't all speak in whole sentences all the time. We interrupt ourselves as we speak. The historians certainly do that. And I leave that in because I want it to be conversational. Uh, but we do, uh, we're kind enough that we check grammar and make sure that they're not going to be embarrassed or angry with us by the time they actually see the book. And then the final thing is we fact check. So I had a team of people here that went back and checked what I selected against the historical record because 
will misspeak. I probably said something wrong during the course of this podcast. And uh, that happens in the interviews too. So we want to check all the dates, check all the names, and then make sure we also spelled them correctly so that the final product, which is going to be around for a long time, is in the best possible shape. So there's uh, then it goes to the editor and that at Public Affairs. We've worked with Benjamin Adams on our last several books. And they do what editors do, which is say, this is too long, this paragraph is, is extraneous, um, move this around, uh, it's not following. And he helps shape it into its best form possible. And then we go through all the long stages of publishing a book. Anybody that's listening that's ever done it, it's an amazingly long and detailed process. Even in the digital age, you get back multiple copies to make sure that it's going to be going to, to press in the right form. And then you get what I'm holding in my hands here, which is a galley copy it's your last possible chance to find things you didn't like and we all went through that with a fine tooth comb and invariably i know when i open up that final copy <laughs> i'm gonna see something i missed <laughs> but we sure worked hard at it in rob kennedy it's the type of book where you can pick up read a chapter or two put it down and i find myself moving from the top five to the bottom five just to compare the the, the leadership styles of these presidents they are a great read um, if I can plug our own book and our own books because of all the effort that goes into preparing them. But then as a reference, uh, we also have a book on the First Ladies, and I've been reading that as I read presidential biographies. It's a great quick reference to read a chapter on a president or read a chapter on a First Lady and ha have that help inform any other reading that you're doing. So they have a great shelf life, dare I say, and uh, they're great to have uh, available whenever you want to pick up and learn something about a president or a particular part of history. The chapters aren't terribly long. They're easy to get through, and you'll learn a lot. Newsflash, the co-CEOs of C-SPAN are, in fact, history nerds. <laughs> yes, yes, it's a job requirement. <laughs> Let me conclude with the first president, George Washington, and, and Susan, why Ron Chernow was selected his book, Washington, A Life. Well... Ron Chernow's, uh, it, it's a, a fabulous, I think a nearly thousand page biography of our first president. Uh, Ron Chernow is a, 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 an incredibly honored uh, historian. We also, uh, we had a few Washington biographies to pick, but we, we wanted to include Ron Chernow. And uh, people know him right now because of the Hamilton book. And he's also done one after that on Ulysses Grant. So he brings so much scholarship to the table. And uh, this just seemed like the right selection for our first president, who ends up just being out of first place by his one ranking. It's really interesting being at Mount Vernon last night for our, our launch event, being in the home of the first president and not having him be number one. I felt a little awkward about it. But the true story of him is he ranks number one or number two in every category except, understandably, pursued equal justice for all. Uh, all of the early slaveholding presidents have low marks in that category, as they should. And Mount Vernon, to its credit, over the past several decades, has been working so hard to tell that aspect of George Washington's story. And here's what Ron Chernow said about our first president. Washington didn't like to be uh, touched. There's a story, uh, perhaps apocryphal, but it makes the point that at the Constitutional Convention that uh, Hamilton, Governor Morris, we're talking about whether or not this was true that Washington didn't like to be touched. And Hamilton uh, dared uh, Morris to touch him, made him a bet that he would not go over and actually touch Washington. Uh, Morris went over and gave uh, Washington a slap on the shoulder and said, how are you today, General? And Washington apparently turned and gave him a withering glare 
that he never forgot. Again, we don't know that this story is, is authentic, but uh, certainly um, people were shocked uh, when Washington was embraced. For instance, Lafayette, who was like a surrogate son, uh, many stories of Lafayette embracing Washington with both arms, in one case actually uh, giving Washington a, a kiss across the face from ear to ear, which no one did. But the fact that people recorded this was an expression of their shock that someone was behaving with this kind of familiarity. And Washington had a way of sending out signals that you did not act familiarly. And he always told his subordinates, whether his military political subordinates, that one of the secrets of, of leadership was not to be overly familiar with your subordinates. And Rob, one of the things that I took away from reading the book, and Susan alluded to this earlier, is that it's beyond the marble statues we bring these presidents to life as human beings, and that's part of what they'll see on the website as well. It's uh, evident in the book. It's evident in the biographers that we spoke to and the way they approach their works. And we have developed a very full website at cspan.org slash the presidents where you can go in and see the initial programs that were the basis for these interviews and also quite a bit of additional information on the presidents or uh, terms that have come up in several of the biographies. Susan, the final chapter is a president who is not yet ranked, for obvious reasons, but Donald Trump is included in the book. Why? Well, he's one of the reasons the book was written at the time it was written. What has this country been doing except talking about Donald J. Trump since that moment on election night when we understood uh, that he was going to be the next president of the country. We remember that moment, don't we? We do indeed. <laughs> and uh, so we had to include him in some way. We knew it because everybody wanted, wants to ask, well, how's he doing against these 10 qualities? So knowing that he would not be ranked until he leaves the White House, we decided to separate him from all the other presidents in the book as a separate chapter. And we gathered together the three historians, uh, the um, Brinkley, Medford, and Richard Norton Smith, and brought them into this very radio studio, as a matter of fact, and did an hour-long podcast with them, and asked them not to comment so much in his performance in office as a newsworthy event, but to put it in the context of time. So if there's a discussion about his relations with the press, which have been rather fractured, uh, it, the historians talked about the difficulty that many presidents, almost all presidents, have had with the press over time, starting with John Adams, the, you know, the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were really a, a reaction to um, wanting to muzzle the press at the time because Adams was so frustrated with them. So uh, that's what the value of this conversation is, is to say this country's been through all kinds of presidents and all kinds of challenges. And having a bit of context of history makes you feel that no matter what's been thrown at us so far, our constitutional process has allowed this country to persevere. And here we are all these years later, and uh, you know the country is getting bigger and more complicated, harder to govern, uh, but we're still at it. And so, Rob Kennedy, the next survey will come based on what happens in 2020, correct? Right. I mean, we've normally done these surveys as one president's term ends, and that president is then ranked for the first time in the survey. So it would probably be in December of the year in which President Trump um, is no longer been elected president, and then we would publish the results in the next January, whenever so that might be. Two years or six years. Yeah. Yeah. Dare I ask, is there an 11th book? 
Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I have to recover from this one first. They really are uh, all-consuming, and uh, both of us, Rob and I, have day jobs that keep us a little busy. Uh, so uh, they're they're fun to do, but they also uh, take a lot out of me. So right now I'm enjoying talking about it rather than working on it. The book is titled The Presidents. Noted historians rank America's best and worst chief executives. And the chief executives of this network, Rob Kennedy and Susan Swain, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app online at cspan.org. We thank you for listening.